Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loves us and raise people up in his love. We're grateful to have you listen in. Regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's very wonderful to see you all today, like you said, in a different setting. Um, thank you for those of us who have been praying for our move. We are now settled in a new place. Hope to see you here. <laughs> uh, but one thing that stays the same is the book of Acts. Uh, so we'll just be jumping straight into the sermon this week. I know we have a bunch of things that are going on in our country that is going on in our world, but we'll, we'll jump into it for now. Okay. Um, last week we talked a little bit about Paul's nephew and we talked about, um, Paul and his time in prison, um, but today we're going to be talking about Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 23. There's a lot of verses today. Acts chapter 24, verses 1 to 23. Acts is after the book of John and before the book of Romans. I will be reading from the ESV. If you do not have the ESV, um, that's fine. Uh, just letting you know so that you can take an account, um, into account discrepancies in the text. Acts chapter 24. This is the word of the Lord. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your oversight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out when, while standing among them. It is res with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a 
rather accurate knowledge of the way. Put them off, saying, "When Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case." Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying? Abba, we we are so grateful for you. And we are so grateful for everything that you are doing. Abba, we just ask that as we have read your holy and perfect word, we ask, oh God, that you would cover this sermon and this passage with your spirit and with your anointing. Father God, that every single person who is listening to this from wherever they are would hear your voice We hear your conviction for their lives. Abba, I am limited. I am a human being. And I am not, I am not you. But God, you are the almighty, perfect heavenly God. And you know the individual unique needs of every single person listening. So Abba, I pray that you and you alone would reign, that you would be with every heart, that you would Give courage to where courage is needed and conviction and challenge to where conviction and challenge is needed. Father, we live in the time of a pandemic. It is so hard to pursue faith. It is so hard to pursue faith over a screen. But God, we believe that greater than anything that is happening in this nation, greater than our degrees, greater than our finances, greater than our futures, greater than our jobs and our vocations, greater than our families is the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, we just pray that you would make yourself known this morning, that you would reign over the hearts of everyone who is listening, that there would be no worship of people, That there would be no worship of idols. That there would be no worship of politics or even of money or fame or security. But God, that we would stand before you in worship. That we would face you, God. And we pray for those who were not able to make it today. God, we pray that there would be a hunger in them that does not die until they see you. We pray, God, that they would feel uncomfortable. That they would feel uncomfortable without you. Jesus, we pray for comfort and peace in your presence to rest among every single person in our congregation who are present and not present. And Lord, we just pray that you would be magnified. Help us to never lose our wonder. The world may fade tomorrow in 24 hours, but your word, your love endures forever and ever. Amen. God, we, oh, sorry. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm still praying in my heart, and I said my prayer aloud. Uh, we are continuing through our sermon series in Acts. The title for this sermon is Accusations and Faithful Witness. Accusation and Faithful Witness. And um, the main idea of this passage is witness is faithfulness and personal integrity in the midst of accusation. I'm going to say that main idea one more time. Witness is faithfulness and personal integrity in the midst of accusation. Okay, so here we have before us a passage where Paul has been safely rescued from his plight with the nephew, uh, through the nephew, through God's usage of of the good instrument of his nephew. And now he is on trial before Governor Antonius Felix, all right? So he's before the governor. And on one side, it's Paul. 
And on one side is Ananias. And I'm going to break down for you what the Jews bring against Paul and what Paul says in response. And I want to highlight to you the enormity of this case. This case is, it's tantamount to, uh, it's not, it's more important then, but what, what kind of case this comes to mind is, have you ever seen like a very highly publicized case in the news? The, the case that comes to mind for me as a New Yorker, uh, you know, I kind of look at today, uh, but as a New Yorker, one case that really comes to mind that was really highly publicized was when after like years and years of wiretapping and phone tapping and getting in the midst, when, um, Rudy Giuliani and the whole, the, the district attorneys and the, and the gov, um, yeah, the district attorneys and the attorney general, uh, made a case against all the Italian mobs in New York City. It was the biggest case ever. Every single word that was said was publicized. And, I mean, up till recently when Rudy Giuliani started taking another direction in his personal career, um, in New York City, he was literally heralded as the guy who took the mobs off the streets. Like, this was a big, big deal. You know, even now, it is such a big deal. That case is brought up over and over again because New York was not a safe place to be. It was not a safe place to be whatsoever. But over years and years of wiretapping, there was a hugely publicized case where all these people were, were found guilty. Um, and that's, you know, when everyone hangs on every word, the news pops up every morning, you're getting live updates of what's going on in the trial, who's in the jury, yada, yada, yada. That's the kind of trial this is. This is the chief priest of Jerusalem against the main missionary of the evangelistic movement of the early church. Y'all gotta understand, this is Paul against the head honcho of the head honchos in Israel. Of Judaism, it's quite like we we take lightly of it now because we might not understand the gravity of it. But this is a huge case, and after the Jews present their case, they bring in unexpectedly they have a hidden chip and they bring in this guy named Tertullus. He's known as this rhetorician, but what he actually is, he's a lawyer. He's an ancient lawyer at the time. And he brings formal charges against Paul before the governor. You know that this guy is trained to do this because the way that he showers the judge, aka the governor, with all these, all these fluffy words right before he goes in. That's, that's actually very formal and it's very custom. Because you see, the Roman Empire still operated on honor. So you see, he says, you know, since through you we enjoy much peace and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. It's very, like, light, it's very uh, pleasant, pretty language. This guy clearly has a way with his words, and he starts off with this very formal way of addressing the judge, most excellent Felix, and addressing his accomplishments as a governor before he goes into everything. So first, he formally introduces himself, and he formally introduces the cause, and then he lays down a couple of charges against Paul. The first thing that really stands out is that he calls Paul a public enemy, okay? Why is this so important? In in the English, public enemy is just public enemy, right? But in the original context of this passage, there is this double-edged sword-like meaning about Paul. And that's, there is this aspect of pestilence. So Paul is considered to be annoying or disturbing or irritating. There's this aspect of pestilence because that word, that public enemy word was actually used like in the case of like public plagues when insects would like 
completely, you know, demolish like livestock or ruin crop. That's that's the way that the original word is used, not in the context of people, but in the context of people, it's this public enemy thing. So there's this undertone of annoyance and disturbance of of life, and then on top of that, there's this. Level of destruction. So it's like if the layer of the word public enemy was a cake, you've got this underbed of being irritating, and then this this nice little cream in the middle sprinkled with rhetoric, and then on top you've got this thick layer of destructiveness. So not only is Paul annoying. But he's destructive, and then Tertullus goes into specifics about why and how exactly, practically, he is destructive, and he calls him the ringleader of riots. Now, the the idea of a ringleader. What do you think of when you think of the word ringleader? I think of that guy with the baton in the middle of. A, I've never been to a circus, so I don't know why I imagine a circus. I actually imagine the Greatest Showman um, because that's the most recent ringleader I've ever seen. But I just imagine like this person twirling this. This stick faster than I can even my eyes can even comprehend and singing and dancing and and making a big big show like this ringleader he's the he's the guy to string everything together he's kind of like I don't I don't mean to say this but like when worship leaders make a set worship leaders we you 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 choose all the songs you choose all the transitions you tie everything in together and you make all of it i like to think of praise especially when in in greater sets i like to think of it as one cohesive piece that's why i like to weave in and out of songs to make the congregation uncomfortable but also to create the space of worship where we're worshiping god um not to tie that into a, a circus ringleader, but I, the ringleader ties in different acts to create this cohesive show. It's not just individual performances. There might be an elephant. There might be, you know, acrobatics. There might be a, a woman with a beard um, and a guy on stilts or whatever it may be. Um, but it's tied in together to be this ginormous show and the person who orchestrates that and weaves everything in together is the ringleader so that's the that's the understanding of the translation but in the in the original context of the passage there's this double layer where the the context of the passage is actually it's it's more a militaristic word it actually might more adequately translate as the first the first in line in battle so the ringleader is always the person who goes first in every battle. And he calls him the ringleader of riots. So it's not just that Paul is orchestrating and weaving these things in together, but he's the first one. He's the one to lead the charge. He's the one to lead everyone in violence. Riots, the, this word riots, it also means uprisings. It means revolts. It's the very thing that Rome is in charge of stopping or um, preventing. And so this is a very big deal. This thick upper layer of destructiveness is a very big deal. And then it's compounded when it's when Paul is called the ringleader of the riots. Because uprisings and revolts, they threaten civil harmony and peaceful conduct that Roman governors are responsible for. So what Turtleus does here is he actually says, hey, this is something that you have to care about because this guy is a ringleader of riots. And he takes this issue against Jews and Paul that is completely, almost completely theological and completely about individual power in the religious circle. He actually takes Turtleus in his rhetoric. He makes it a political problem. He makes it a, he makes it a danger issue. And he says, hey, this is actually something that is in your territory. So it's fitting that we bring it before you because that's your responsibility to keep the peace. But Paul is causing conflict and destruction in the people. And then last, but definitely not least, he says that Paul desecrated the temple. This is important to the Jews because Jews, the temple is everything. So when you desecrate the temple, that's... In some cases, that's worthy of grave punishment, right? Um, and he actually says, he actually says that Paul didn't desecrate, he attempted to desecrate the temple. This is very, 
I don't know if I don't know if there are any like law majors in the room or any lawyers that will be listening to this afterwards. But the uh, this understanding of a orchestrated attempt is very very multi layered. It's not just that Paul was defiling the temple; it's that Paul attempted it and that he intended it. So there's this double, another double layer, another double layered offense against Paul. That not only did Paul attempt it, but he intended to defile it and then acted. It's the difference between a crime of passion and a crime of planning. So even when you look at criminal law, when you look at murder, third degree murder or manslaughter is considered uh, a crime of passion. It's a crime that's in the moment. It's a crime that isn't supposed, isn't, isn't premeditated, but happens in the moment while somebody gets upset. But as you go up the degrees, the, 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 the thing that is in question as it goes to second and first degree murder is premeditation. How long was this planned for? What was involved, right? Um, and that's what really impacts, even in our society today, the level of a crime. And so what this guy is saying here is that he attempted it and that he planned it. So that tying in with the destructiveness of Paul, this is a grave, grave, grave offense politically to bring up against a guy for a religious reason. Because in reality, all Paul did is believe in Jesus Christ and be a leader for the Jesus believers. But by twisting words and by twisting the facts, Tertullus has painted this image of Paul where Paul is the leader of the Jew, uh, the, of the, of the Jesus followers, which Paul is. And because of that, he incites riots and he plans for them. He desecrates the temple. He not only attempts it, but he intends to do that. That's his, that's his goal. And that he is a public enemy. That not only is he disturbing it, but he's destroying the peace. Paul has a lot to do against this at this point. Number one, he has to explain that he didn't create a set dissension. This is, he has to first explain that he wasn't cr- trying to create violence or revolt or dissension. This is really hard for Paul to explain because in reality, wherever Paul went, dissension happened. Not because of Paul's fault, but because everybody was like, outreach of what Paul was saying. It's like when when your when your sister spills milk next to you and then your mom comes in and says, What happened? And she goes, She did it, and you're like, Well the milk is spilled and I'm right next to the milk. How the heck do I prove that it was this chick and not me? Right? It's like one of those moments where it's not that you caused it, but because you were in the wrong place at the right time. There could be a correlation that's made. And so when when Paul has this correlation, it's going to be hard for him to prove that he didn't create it <laughs> because his, it did it did happen. Right. Um, and then he has to explain his leadership of a cult or a sect that pledges devotion. You, so what why this why this? Religious issue becomes an even greater deal is because Jesus was executed by the Roman Empire. Pontius Pilate washes his hands clean and the centurions are the ones to bring him to the cross. So what, what ends up happening when you bring it before a Roman judge is that he has to explain that he is the leader of a sect that pledges devotion to a man that was executed by Roman authors as a teacher who seduced the people and falsely claimed to be king of the Jews. Remember how Jesus on top of the cross, it said, here is the king of the Jews. And this, this was the biggest deal to the Roman Empire because the only leader is Caesar. And so the fact that this leadership of, of the Christians was brought up in, in offense to Paul, it can be a problem. 
Um, and then on top of that, he has to prove that not only did he not attempt to defile the temple, but that he did not intend to defile the temple. I know this is a lot of words, and I know this is very like it might sound almost like legalistic, a lot of like legal terminal. It might sound like very you know thought oriented, but you guys have to understand, right? In any court of law, there are multiple charges that are laid against, for example, a burglar. Right? When a burglar breaks into a home. The first thing he does is trespass. The second thing he does is steal. If there's somebody involved, somebody at home, and he, you know, bashes that person's head and knocks them unconscious, it's battery or even third-degree murder. There are multiple charges that can be brought against criminals, and and the jury can find them innocent or guilty of all individual charges, right? And in this case, Paul has a multi-layered triple charge brought against him by Tertullus. So this is a big deal. It's highly legal, but because it's highly legal, it is a big deal. Think about when somebody twists your words. Like when somebody, like for example, I don't know, Let's say you're walking down the street, right? And you're just, or you're just, you know, debating in a classroom, or you're doing your thing at your job, and then there's one person that just really doesn't like you for whatever reason. Maybe you're getting better grades than them, or you're doing better performatively than them, and they start to rally people against you and claim. False things, and to the point where you go into the bathroom to—I don't know—wash your mug, or you you make a group project on your own, and they twist you, they twist your intentions, and they twist your words to say, "Oh, that person's avoiding us," or "Oh, this person is trying to pit people against us," and they start gossiping about you, and then it becomes this whole thing that devolves into this huge misunderstanding about who you are, and you're just left hurt and battered. That's the kind of situation that Paul is in right now, but far worse because it's legal. Paul's entire existence and all of his actions are basically being twisted into something that was far different than what it started off with. And so Paul can be painted, like Paul is painted as this criminal. As this criminal against the Jews and this criminal against the Roman Empire, I'm sure everyone has had somebody in their life that has twisted their words, or maybe you know, let's say you did something wrong to a friend, but that friend blows it out out of proportion, and what maybe what you did was a mistake, but that friend blows it out of proportion and it leads to this entire basic. Practical excommunication, where you are just completely kicked out of the fold. These kinds of things are actually not uncommon. They're painful, but they're not uncommon. And it's very easy, in the midst of words or by looking at things in a different perspective or in a different light, to twist someone's actions or words or integrity or character out of proportion. Right. And so. That's that's what's going on with Paul right now. Now, I want to answer a technical question: like, why did the high priest bring in a lawyer? As you see later, Paul speaks for himself, and the Jews most likely can also speak for themselves. But why does the lawyer be brought in by the high priest? It's likely a tactic by the chief priest, like utilizing the law to get his way. Just as he, in the same, I, I, my. Out of out of my work in the passage, I was I was taking away that it was in the same spirit as when the chief priests let these zealots try to kill Paul, even though that's against the law. It's just using any means possible to win the power struggle, and so that's why this Ananias, knowing that he cannot beat Paul with his words, brings in this very good lawyer, and he uses all methods. He doesn't care as long as he wins. But the worst part of this, the worst part about all of this, because you know, lawsuits get nasty. Friend groups can get nasty, right? Coworkers, schoolmates, even roommates. 
things can get nasty, but this is a religious battle. And that's when you start to see all the dirt and the, the, the brokenness of this religious institution come to life. Because at its core, it's a difference in religious opinion. At its core, it's a difference in theology, Jewish theology and Christian theology, so to speak. That's what this is about. But yet this devolves and it involves the Roman emperor and they try to kill him. And then it just, just, it just spirals into this mess where now Paul is being painted as a political enemy and a criminal to the Roman empire over his faith and action. Imagine that a religious battle in politics, man, you know, <sighs> sounds so terrible, doesn't it? So what's Paul's response? So Tertullus, he gives up his, his, or he concludes his speech and he yields to Paul as Paul begins his response. The first thing we notice here is that Paul is not as flattering to the judge. He says, I, I defend myself cheerfully because I know that you have been a judge for many years. That can sound, it is in the same spirit as what uh, Turtleus just did, right? As the lawyer just did. But he's not as flattering. He's not saying, oh, most excellent, you know, glorious, wise judge and governor. No, Paul's just... He's acknowledging the judgment of Felix because Felix is actually, he's actually married to a Jewish woman and he's been uh, a judge over Jewish matters for a number of years. And so what Paul's seeing is actually not fluff, but he's just referring to an actual fact that Felix is an experienced governor in Jewish affairs. And so Paul is just saying, hey, I'm, I'm glad to be before you because you've done this for a long time. And then he jumps right in into his response. The first thing he says, and I love, we have to give, I I don't always like what Paul says. Like, granted, full non-disclosure, like, I don't know if I would fully get along with Paul. Sometimes, sometimes, you know, I don't know if I would get along with him. But I really think that the way that he went about this response is so wise and so sincere that we must take note of the way that he goes about it. The first thing he says is, I was only here 12 days. That's not the type of thing you can contest. It's almost like, it's a difference of fact versus opinion. Opinion. What's a good opinion? I'm hungry, so meat is amazing. Kogi is amazing. I don't know about y'all, but because of Wesley Lee, I've been looking at more meat on Instagram and it has ruined my life. It has ruined my whole life, okay? Meat is amazing. Meat is amazing, right? That's an opinion. Now, some of y'all might take that as fact and to you, I wholeheartedly agree. But it is an opinion. I live with my dearest car over there. She does not like meat as much as I do. I try not to take offense to it because I love Tara, but she likes vegetables more. I know, it's pretty incredible. I mean she it's it's better it's better for your stool and it's better for your it's better for your life. It's better for your life. Meat is not necessarily good for you, so try not to eat too much of it. Don't be like me. Um but yeah, so that's a difference of opinion. As much as as much as emphatically as I believe in it, that's in a matter of opinion, and that's a matter of where I stand. Meat? Or vegetables. Meat. That's where I stand. Right? Um, and I can't help that. Right? But something that is fact is like, today is October 25th. That's a fact. Today, right now, in Boston, Massachusetts, it is Sunday, October 25th. That's a fact. That's an uncontestable fact that is completely just has nothing to do with a human being, has nothing, it's just a grounded sensory detail um, of, of our current life, okay? 
Today is Sunday, October 25th. It's cloudy. That's it, right? Paul doesn't start off his his argument with an opinion. He starts off with a fact, a sensory detail that people can witness to and relate to. He was only there 12 days. But the significance in that is that 12 days, especially when he was doing a ritual for six of those 12 days, is not enough time to organize an entire rebellion. The man is so freaking smart. So it's not enough time to organize a crowd rebellion. And the second thing he says, I did not argue with anyone. Paul strictly speaks, first and foremost, with facts. He did not with argue with anyone. And then he says, there are n- there's no proof to the charges that these people bring before you, because I came 12 days ago. Oh, and you also have to consider he's been in ritual because he was completing the Nazareth vow, right, for purification. And then he's been in jail a number of days. So he literally had no time, literally no time to organize a rebellion, right? And he did not argue with anyone. And then he says, there's no proof. There's no actual proof to what they're saying. He states a couple of facts or just statements, just facts of the case, right? In in every in every case, the the judge and the lawyers they come together and they discuss facts of the case and they settle on facts based on evidence of the case, and that's the groundwork for which lawyers make their cases. Otherwise, you can just go on forever and ever, right? They're just uncontested facts. It's very important when you argue anything to have an uncontested detail. And that's what Paul lays down here. And then he says, there's no proof. So that's the first thing he does, right? And then the second thing he does is both super courageous and also smart, but risky. And he accepts that he is a leader of the way. Now, this is important because Paul is not being like, no, 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 I was not a ringleader. No, 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 like, I am not a leader. Like, Paul isn't saying anything in response. But instead, he presents a different perspective than what Turtleus presented. So instead of disputing Turtleus's point, about his identity as a leader in the church, Paul presents a different outlook of his leadership. So he doesn't compromise his faith, he doesn't compromise his leadership, and he offers a different perspective. He takes the wind out of the enemy's sails because it's an emphatic, like Paul isn't just being like, I'm a leader, I am a leader, that's me, you know? Like, like when, when you eat too much of cookies from the cookie jar and your mom goes, who ate all this? And you're like, me, you know, Paul's not giving into something. Paul is emphatically explaining a different perspective. He argues that the way to worship and salvation in Jesus is not outside of Judaism or makes him abandon and everything. Verse 15 says, I have hope in God, a hope that they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. And then he says that he has a clear conscience before God and people. Because he answers to the Lord. So Paul, Paul doesn't even like he doesn't even normally he might he might go into this explanation that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. But Paul actually doesn't even do that. He says, I am a leader. I do believe in Jesus, and I do not break Jewish law. I am still within the Jewish paradigm. I have not abandoned anything about my identity, and I have hope, a hope that they also have. So the way that Paul does, okay, so you have to understand, I don't think I've seen a lot of people do this in a long time. Paul offers, he gives in to the enemy and what the enemy is charging against him. He says, yes, I'm a leader of the Nazarites. But the way is not in opposition to Judaism. It's together. 
The specific perspective that he brings in is not of division, but of unity. So he's saying he's drawing common ground between Judaism and Christianity. He says, I am a leader, but it's not what you think because we are not unaligned to the Old Testament. That is true. The Bible completely consists of both the New and the Old Testament. We do not throw away anything of the Old Testament. And Paul accepts that. And then he says, I have hope in God that there will be a resurrection. If you guys remember from a couple of weeks ago, that's important because Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead. So that's very important. And the third thing that Paul says, the final thing that he says is one of intention. This is when Paul explains himself the most. So the first thing is detail. The second thing is an explanation of Paul's identity and a re, a rephrasing or a reframing of the Christian faith to have common ground with Judaism rather than division. And then the third thing is the intention of Paul that he came to give, not to rebel. And that when the Jews found him, he was doing purification rites. He was ritually pure. Paul's like, hey, I came to give alms. And I was purifying myself when they arrested me. This is the most soundproof way to go against what this man is saying. Because Turtleus was saying a lot of things that was bringing to question Paul's criminality and his integrity. And the way, the ultimate way that Paul preserves himself is fact, faithfulness, and personal integrity. He explains his faith. And he explains his integrity. Now Felix finishes hearing this part and he goes, I will not hear anymore. This will not continue until Lysias comes. It's not going to happen. And he lets, he keeps Paul in custody. Paul stays in prison, but Felix gives him freedom and that friends can visit him and tend to his aid. And that's how our passage ends today. Now, the picture that we see of Paul is somebody who is staying true to himself in trial. When somebody accuses you of something you didn't do, what is your response? When somebody accuses you of being a particular way, a good rudimentary example is when your parents accuse you of not loving them because you've acted unruly or because you're trying to live your life and they want you to live your life the way they have envisioned you to. But your personal opinion of your life is different and you bump and clash heads with your parents. Your parents are like, you're, you don't love us or you're not obedient. And you're like, what? I love you guys. Just want to live my life, right? When somebody when somebody says something to you that you feel is unfair, or when somebody accuses you of something that you feel like you aren't, what is your reaction? My reaction is to rebel. Um, so I am no better than any of anyone um, because I have this chronic, chronic history of giving my mom a lot of trouble, even more trouble every time. <laughs> She's like, why aren't you listening to me? I was, I was really bad. I apologize. My mom's going to see this later. I love you, mom. Um, um, but not, not, so what happens when people unfairly say something to you? What happens when people question who you are? How do you react? Some of us rebel. Some of us close ourselves off. Some of us put up our walls and we start to get guarded. But one very important thing that we see Paul do is that he stays consistent. Like I explained a, a few Sundays ago, 
There's no way that this doesn't hurt Paul. Paul's family is in Jerusalem. Paul was a Pharisee. He was taught. There is no way that this does not hurt his feelings. There's no way. But Paul stands firm, not not inconsistently just loving them, because that would be unwise. But he stands firm in who he is in Christ. I find that to be so incredibly hard sometimes. I don't know about you guys. But when you are in an unfair situation and somebody is twisting your integrity and your character out of proportion and you are unfairly accused of crime even. I feel like my first reaction is to be like, God, why would you let this happen to me? I thought you loved me. God, this sucks. That would be my first reaction, right? But Paul, he digs his feet, his roots deeper into the soil of the gospel and clings to God rather than people and staying consistent with who he is. He says, I have a clear conscience before God and before people. It's almost like he has no emotion. That's what it feels like. What the heck is going on with Paul? Paul is trusting in the Lord. That you, it is hard. It is hard in the middle of accusation to trust in the Lord. In fact, the way that you react in accusation actually is really telling of what you hold on to. It's really telling of what matters to you. Like when somebody accuses me of something like, I don't know, like when if somebody accuses me of, I keep using food references, I really need some. Anyway, um, if somebody accuses me of eating something that was out, I'd be like, yeah, that's me. But if somebody accuses me of stealing or accuses me of a greater crime, that I laundered money or that, I don't know, that I did something terrible, anything, anything that you can, actually don't, don't imagine that I did something like that. But like, let's say, you know, Especially when somebody, oh, you know what really presses my buttons? Do you guys have a pet peeve? When somebody accuses me of not being loyal, yo, 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 that really like, like, that really like pisses me off, right? Like, I can be accused of this and that, but when somebody accuses me of not being loyal, I'm like, okay, see you outside, meet you in the roof in 15 minutes, you know, square up, all right? That's, that's, that's my first, my, like, even if it's again, like, against, like, huge voice, that's my first instinctive reaction, okay? It's just, I can't help it, right? And it's easy to get angry about questioning integrity in particular. Especially when Paul's done nothing wrong, to question the integrity of a person is to really get at something that is really painful and really, like, just leaves a really bad taste in your mouth, okay? But Paul, he doesn't waver at the situation. He doesn't, he doesn't get, or there's no mention, there's no mention in scripture of him getting hurt. There's no mention in scripture of him getting angry or him crying. Paul doesn't even take it personally, it seems. He just stands his ground and speaks his faith. He says, I have a clear conscience. That's not because Paul is an unwavering individual. That's not actually because Paul is a superhuman with no emotion and nothing whatsoever. That's that's not that's not it. Okay? It's not because Paul has no family and he's just an incarnate of Jesus and he, he is just capable, he's just Superman and he can do the impossible. That's not Paul. And that's not any church leader either. 
There's no church leader that is going to be inhumanely patient and inhumanely gracious. Everyone is a human being. Okay. So how does Paul do it? And it's confidence in God. Not confidence in God taking him to victory. You have to understand, Paul is not being confident that these charges are going to be taken off of him. Paul is not standing his ground in his faith because he's expecting to win the trial. This is not prosperity. This is not about believing in Jesus makes me the most prosperous person in the room. No. Paul is confident in the presence of Christ. And he confesses with courage that he is of the way. With sincerity and honesty. You might wonder, why doesn't Paul lie? Why doesn't Paul react? Why doesn't Paul do a more argumentative approach? How come Paul doesn't say anything other than these men can't prove it? How come Paul doesn't bring it to the fact that they almost killed him? That's illegal. That's illegal. They tried to kill a prisoner. Like he's in Roman custody and while he was in Roman custody, while he was being transported, they tried to kill him. That's illegal. That's something that they can go on trial for. But why doesn't Paul bring up their crime? Why doesn't Paul take a more attacking approach? Because Paul is confident in Christ. How can we apply this in our lives? The first thing that we can apply is that the presence of the grace of God fights for us and speaks for us and that there's no need for us to put up our guard. You might get hurt. The people you love might stab you in the back. The things that you care about, they might turn on you. But I'm a firm believer that when we stand firm in Christ, God fights for us in the spaces that we don't exist in. That might not mean that that level of unfairness gets lifted from you. It might not mean that your integrity is cleared and that you are vindicated. But the grace of God is that he is your armor and that you need not build your own. You don't need a plan B and a plan C. Well, if they don't trust me here, I'm just going to go elsewhere. And I'll find other friends. Or maybe I'll move somewhere else. Well, if my parents aren't willing to understand me for who I am, maybe I'll move elsewhere. Maybe I won't talk to them again. Maybe I'll just, you know, do this or do that. There's no need for sin to birth sin. There's no need... For misunderstanding to birth more misunderstanding and dissension and division. That is your flesh speaking. And I completely and wholeheartedly relate to that. Okay? And I'm here with you. I stand as somebody who would also react in my flesh. Especially to an accusation of my integrity. Hell yeah. Like, how am I supposed to just chill, right? But we are, we do not operate. Y'all have to understand that we we do not operate. We don't. We don't operate on on the on the values of guardedness and the the self protective ways that the world promotes because we are protected. It's not. It's not just because it's holy. It's a practical application of being in the presence of God. A few years ago, um, I was stuck in a situation. Um, 
as, as a pastor, I, I get stuck in a lot of situations where uh, my intentions and my integrity get questioned. Um, when I when I first started ministry and when I first started leadership, especially on a lot of you guys know I serve on a rise, um, my integrity was questioned by everyone. Um, it was just something that happened. All my friends, um, I, I don't know, I don't know what it is. I think it's because I'm a, <laughs> I think it's because I'm a loud, strong personality woman. And a lot of people don't grow up in New York City like me. And they don't wear leather blazers like me. So like, I think I just come off a particular way. And, um, yeah, so when people had, obviously, you know, Arise as an organization has had a very rocky past and history and, and process journey uh, with the Korean church in different ways, in different places. And all of that fell on me. And my integrity as a personal, as a pastor and as a woman of God was constantly questioned. Constantly, y'all. I, I, I kid you not, constantly. To this day, really. Um... It's just, it just, you know, like at a certain point, I remember I was so sad because everything I did, I could do, I could do nothing right. You know, if I just spent too much time in ministry, like, why are you spending so much time in ministry? If I spent too much time in school, why are you spending too much time in school? And, and I'm one of the more involved pastors in the area. So obviously you guys know that I'm heavily involved in this ministry and that I spend a lot of time in the week to meet up with people. Um, but there were moments where people have sat me down and tried to intervene even on that. Um, and it just, it's just a part of the calling uh, where everything is brought into question, you know? Um, now I'm not saying that the people that brought that to me are bad. Not by any means. They are people of integrity, of character, people that are loved by God. But it hurts. It hurts. Um, and it stings. And sometimes it, it can lead me to feel defeated. Um, but we stand in God because God is our defense. I think through my time in ministry, weathering, you know, situations and misunderstandings in church, outside of church, amongst ministers, amongst congregation members, what I've come to learn is that I'm I'm limited and I'm constantly going to fall short of expectation. I'm constantly going to disappoint someone at some time. But I am not a defender of the gospel as much as God is my defense. That's hard for me to swallow. I'm naturally somebody who defends causes. That's that's what I do best. But I need not defend myself and I, I need to fight that urge to feel like everything is unfair and to wake up in the middle of the night angry and confused as to why this happened and why people are thinking of me one way or another. I mean, now it's a whole lot better. It's God has really, that's also my, that's also my testimony that God has really, he's really fought for me um, in these past few years of being in ministry. Um, but I, I would say like, this is one of the most important things of the Christian walk. That was the most unbearable thing for me as a pastor. I could weather persecution from people outside the church. I can weather suffering. I can weather not having a bathroom. I can weather not having a proper home to or a bed to sleep on. I can weather most things. But accusations and misunderstandings and questions of my character from other church people, that's hard. Because that, that's painful for me. Because I'm a pastor. And I'm called to love everyone. So what if the people that love you, they accuse you? And what if the people that you care about, they turn on you? But we have our confidence in Christ. Christ is our defense. He's not something that we defend. God doesn't need us to defend him. We, we, we are weak and we might need to be defended. 
That might not take the shape of, you know, smoke screens and pillars of cloud by by day and pillars of fire by night. And God just coming in the middle being like, it's not true. It might not look like that, okay? Although God is capable of that. Um, he, it's not going to look like that. But I promise you, we have hope. Not in better circumstances, not in victory or prosperity, but we have hope in unfair situations, in disappointing situations, in definitely defeating situations. We have a hope in the defense of God. We have a hope that God is our defense, that he is our righteousness, even when we are sinful, even when we fall short of the glory of God. We have been given our identity in Christ as a gift. And even though we might even disappoint ourselves, even though we might not feel like we we as a person are where we need to be. And so when things come our way, we're like, yeah, that's right. I'm just a bad person. I'm just a sinner. This is all I can manage. Don't you dare think of yourself less than what God thinks of you. That's prideful. That is not your fight. That is God's fight. Lean into God. Don't just set up a plan B plan C. Don't just get guarded and run away like me. Or rebel. Press into the Lord. Somewhere down the line. Somewhere down the line. God will make it work for good. Trust in the Lord. Have confidence that he is who he says he is. Have confidence that he is sovereign, that he is loving, and that he vindicates us. The second thing is personal integrity. You have confidence in Christ. So be sincere and honest. Paul could have lied. Paul could have twisted his words to create half-truths just as Turtleus did. If you if, if there's nothing that you picked up from that, you should at least be able to pick up that Paul is just as good a rhetorician, if not better. He did not bring up his own charge against the Jews even. But he just stays sincere. Not just sincere to them, but sincere to himself. It's easy for us in our anger, and it's easy for us in situations where we're being blamed for something that we didn't do, when we're being blamed by our parents, by our friends, by our our vocations, our schools, whatever it may be, even by the government, when we are being blamed, it's easy for us to rile up in anger and act in passion. But stay true to yourself. Not just staying true to yourself, but stay true to your faith. That's hard. How do you do it? Confidence in Christ. There's no other way to stay true and to maintain that inner peace inside without a genuine confidence in God. And when you do have a genuine confidence... in who God is. There is no way that that will not permeate into every aspect of your life. Because when you have confidence in God, you're standing on the rock. You will not help but love yourself more. You will not help but let God work. You will not help but lean. I'm not gonna lean on straws when I can lean on a rock, right? When you have confidence that he is a rock, why would you not lean? And lastly, one, one, one practical thing that we can apply is that division in this country right now can be dispelled with faithful witness. And you know how I mentioned, you know, oh my God, how can the church be political? Oh my God, that's so terrible. That's what's going on right now. Um, We are thick in the midst of it, and whether or not you feel like you're a part of it, you are. Okay? 
people are twisting the intentions of either side for whatever reason constantly. But if you are a witness, there can be common ground. Say, for example, if you if you are red and somebody else is blue, but both of you guys believe in Jesus, that in it is in and of itself a common ground and identity. Our goal as a witness is to create common ground. I suck at that, but let's work on that together. So what does it mean for us to have confidence in Christ? Let's take some time to pray about that for a second. What does it mean for us to have confidence in Christ? Not confidence in victory. Not confidence in ourselves and how we can perform, but confidence in Christ. What does that mean? I know this was a long-winded passage and, and, and sermon, and thank you for tracking with me on it. But I hope the way that you view yourselves in the middle of a trial is is being questioned right now. Put yourself in Paul's shoes. How can you find confidence in Christ? What does it look like for you to find confidence in Christ? Let's take some time to think about that and pray for a second. Christ to be your confidence. Are you in a situation where you were accused of something? Unfairly? Do you feel like you constantly have to defend yourself? of your heart right now? Do you feel like the world is against you? That you have to fight? What does it mean for God to be your defense and to have personal integrity and faithfulness in the midst of your witness? Do you have a hard time with that? Let's ask for greater faith, maybe for a greater realization of His presence. listening we hope you were blessed by this week's message for more information check out our website at mbkumc.com